0: Okay, Um, our next speaker, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Tiffany Walker from here at Emory and she's gonna be talking to us about long COVID. And I'd like to tee up her speech by uh, saying, if half of us as healthcare providers in this room have had COVID and if a third of people develop long COVID and a significant number of those have CNS manifestations, I would guess about 10% of the people in the audience right now are suffering from some kind of cognitive insufficiency due to COVID. So pay attention and we'll see what the actual data shows. I
1: think that's a good segue. Um, Thank you everybody for uh, joining me for the end of this conference. It's uh, been a really fruitful conference. I appreciate um, all the presenters before me. Uh, So yes, I'll talk about long COVID. I'm gonna try and keep this targeted to diagnosis and management um, and show you how this can be impactful for your practice. Um, I have no disclosures. So the learning objectives are to be able to describe long COVID epidemiology. And I think that just gives you a strong sense of how much this will impact your patients, your practice. And as Dr. Lennox mentioned, probably some of you as well, Um, be able to identify common symptoms and characterize long COVID physiology because I think taken together, this will help us better describe the diagnostic and management approaches. So we'll start with a case. So this is a 52-year-old female. Her only medical history is that she has obesity. Uh, She does have two COVID vaccinations prior to her incident infection, and she's uh, complaining of fatigue and forgetfulness. So the way she describes it is the fatigue she finds is really worse at the end of the day, especially after having a really hard day at work. It's kind of a delayed onset. Crushing fatigue can last throughout the day into the next day as well. She is having trouble with her memory, trouble concentrating. Um, This is particularly challenging for her because she's an attorney used to high order multitasking and this is really impairing her ability to do her work. Um, She notices when she gets up and moves around, her heart races, she has palpitations, and she's feeling short of breath related to these. And she doesn't volunteer it, but when you ask her, she says, oh yeah, I do have some trouble sleeping, I have trouble falling asleep, and I do wake up a couple times throughout the night. You do a comprehensive physical exam, and the only abnormalities you see are an abnormal cognitive screen, and her labs are normal with the exception of an abnormal D-dimer and an elevated CRP. So what is long COVID? Um, There is no definitive case definition for long COVID, unfortunately, but the WHO case definition is pretty well accepted. Um, Through Delphi consensus, they define this as someone with a prior SARS-CoV-2 infection um, with symptoms for three months from onset that are either new and onset since recovery, so patients can get better and then start to have those symptoms again, or new symptoms can come up, um, or they're persistent from the acute COVID onset forward. Um, they may fluctuate or relapse over time. I think this is also important because I think as um, clinicians, our illness script is, oh, if somebody has fatigue or dyspnea, it should be kind of consistent over time. It shouldn't just go away for a week and then come back again. But we do see that in these long COVID patients. There might be some reasons why and not to discount that. Um, they cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis. Uh, I find that anecdotally, patients are actually pretty good at discerning this. So They may have COPD and dyspnea at baseline, but they say, you know what, doc? My shortness of breath is so much worse after COVID, and it just has not gotten better. Um, and these will impact their everyday function. It's a broad range. Some have mild symptoms, some have very severe symptoms. Um, the best data we have so far on incidence and long COVID comes from an MMWR article I show here um, based on a, a large EHR retrospective cohort. What they found is that the absolute risk increase of developing a new COVID symptom um, following infection was 21% in working-age adults and 27% in the older population. Um, So this really correlates to approximately 25% of patients who have exposure to COVID may go on to develop long COVID. And that's pretty substantial if you consider our our case rate. So this could be 25 million Americans suffering from some degree of long COVID, um, which is probably an underestimate considering our our issues with case ascertainment. So I just want to highlight this will uh, impact your clinical practice. These patients will be coming through your door and and you'll be responsible for managing them. Um, So going backwards... um, So first question, um, which is the most common symptom of long COVID? I figured I'd start with an easy one. And seeing that we've had a little bit of attrition, I'll go before R60. Fatigue, excellent, so you guys got that one right. I think we classically think about it as dyspnea. I just wanna highlight in this, not necessarily that the most important thing to take home from this is that fatigue is most common, it's just that this is not just dyspnea. Um, all of these are symptoms of long COVID, and in fact, the list goes on, it's really quite long. So let's talk about some of the more common symptoms. So this is from a meta-analysis, 18 studies, about 9,000 people, and I think, interestingly, that's a one-year time point from incident infection. So it's pretty late, and you're seeing that some of the most common symptoms, um, fatigue occurring in 25 to 30 percent in this study, Um, what does fatigue look like? So this could be that relaxing, remitting fatigue that's kind of continuous throughout the day. Um, this could also be post-exertional malaise. And so that was what I described in the case presentation, right? They have a cognitive load. They have a physical exertion load some point during the day, delayed onset crushing fatigue that can last for a while. Um, this could also be exercise intolerance. That's your 25-year-old marathon runner that can only run a mile now. Otherwise, she doesn't complain too much throughout the day. Um, depression and anxiety are quite common. Um, I find anecdotally, my patients feel that this is more secondary to the debility of the other symptoms they're experiencing, more so than a primary, um, but something that should be investigated further. Um, Brain fog, what cognitive domains are affected? So trouble um, processing, concentration, um, word finding, so semantic memory, and um, trouble with executive function. Um, dyspnea, as we mentioned, is not necessarily homogeneous. So we have those that had the acute parenchymal injury and then have um, a persistence of their, their injury over time that causes this dyspnea. Um, you also have those that have perceived dyspnea. So maybe um, they get up, they start walking around, heart starts racing, they start feeling very short of breath. Um, this is uh, something that could indicate a dysautonomia or dysrhythmia in the setting of Vancouver. So keep in mind that's potentially heterogeneous as well. We'll see patients with normal workups and have lots of dyspnea. Um, Sleep, this is trouble falling asleep, um, maintaining sleep, and waking up unrefreshed. And also, um, there's a signal for potentially new onset sleep apnea in this population we should know more about in the coming months. Um, Pain syndromes, joint pain, muscle pain, nerve pain not examined in this cohort. Um, headaches are quite common. Chest pain, these can occur together, can occur independently. Um, and nosebleed, you're familiar with, and then palpitations and dizziness can occur together independently. So dysrhythmias, dysodonomia, those can come together. So it's important to determine um, if this, if long COVID is one disease or if it's really a group of syndromes, which you've kind of heard me alluding to. And so these data come from the uh, N3C Recover retrospective cohort. And they did a k-means cluster analysis. Uh, What is that? So they have a model that can take the symptoms of long COVID and sort them into clusters based on statistical association to each other. And this has a distinct advantage over some of the other earlier studies that said, OK, you have brain fog, you have a brain fog cluster. You have dyspnea, you're in the dyspnea cluster. That doesn't give us information about discrete phenotypes. And that's what they are able to do here. And I'd like to highlight um, a couple of them. And so you're seeing that they're showing different phenotypes here, indicating, again, potentially different um, phenotypes along COVID. But I'll talk about the cardiovascular cluster. And the reason I I want to highlight this is we're starting to see some trends across studies uh, of different phenotypes um, across cluster analysis studies. Um, this cardiovascular cluster, what stands out to me is this, this probably in and of itself is heterogeneous because I see a fair number of pulmonary embolisms, and that could contribute to those cardiopulmonary symptoms, of course. Um, I also see a lot of palpitations, um, some vertigo, um, some, some fatigue, and it makes me think about a disease called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, POTS, which you've probably all heard about but don't see a lot, Um, This is a form of dysautonomia, and it's really gaining a lot of traction in the long COVID uh, literature. We're seeing these cases, they're starting to get reported. It seems that this is um, certainly a a phenotype within long COVID. And so I I suspect that some of this cluster is made up of, of these individuals. We're seeing them more commonly in a younger population. Uh, more commonly a female population, but keep in mind they can occur in any long COVID um, patients. But it's unfortunate, it tends to be the younger population that felt they wouldn't have any long-term um, sequelae of COVID uh, or acute sequelae. So they, in, in some cases, um, Warren is concerned about the risk, but this population could have a pretty debilitating long COVID course. Um, another cluster I'd like to bring your attention to is um, this multi-system cluster. Um, Again, because we're seeing trends of this across different studies within long COVID, and uh, these are are very similar, differentiated only by cluster one had more abnormal labs, cluster four had more of a pain uh, signature. And uh, it's not a direct overlap, but it has some manifestations that overlap with uh, something called myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. So you guys know this more commonly as chronic fatigue. I think that this is somewhat of a neglected disease because um, we haven't given it maybe the the, um, scientific rigor that it warrants. And we might be a little bit further ahead in understanding this phenotype um, had there been earlier studies. It has major criteria. So you're seeing that reduction in previous activity level or fatigue, that post-exertional malaise we talked about, um, unrefreshing sleep, and then it has minor criteria of cognitive impairment and orthostatic intolerance. And interestingly, I think you see in here um, similar patterns of that cardiovascular, where you're having some vertigo, you're having palpitations, you're having um, fatigue, um, and then the pain signature is pretty um, characteristic of ME/CFS as well. So again, not definitive that this is ME/CFS, but we are seeing um, uh, gain traction in the literature. Out of the Stanford Long COVID Clinic, 40% of their population met these criteria. Um, for uh, me So keep in mind, there's likely different phenotypes and that might guide your management of these patients. Um, so let's characterize long COVID physiology. So thinking about end organ damage. So starting with pulmonary function, this comes out of a landmark article um, out of Lancet. This is the Huang group looking at a six and 12 uh, month time point. You'll notice in that third column, this is a pretty sick group. The majority of them had severe or critical acute COVID. This was the early variant of COVID. Um, but what stands out is at pretty late time points, the biggest change you see in the far right is a reduction in oxygen diffusion. And that's really corroborated by this imaging that we have here with um, ground glass opacities persisting and irregular lines. So not necessarily pulmonary fibrosis, but persistent changes into the parenchyma and to the lung function at pretty late time points. We'll have to see if this holds true in Omicron, potentially less likely with um, a less severe infections. Um, so there is, of course, concern about a procoagulable state in COVID. We see that in acute COVID. So the question is, do we see it also in long COVID? Um, the... the uh, table on the top, so you've seen this study. This was the incident study I reported from MMWR early, earlier. Um, they also looked at incidents of acute pulmonary embolism, found higher risk in both the working age adults as well as the older adults. And it was corroborated by this study on the bottom, which you've also seen before. This was from that one-year time point of the meta-analysis, um, also showing increased um, uh, risk and excess burden of PE, DVT, and superficial venous thrombosis. So in summary, Uh, Yes, you're at higher risk of VTPE in acute COVID, but that extends into the long COVID uh, phase as well. These studies both looked at cardiovascular sequelae and saw that across the board, increased risk of cardiovascular sequelae, including cardiac dysrhythmias. I'd bring your attention to the top right, and you see that atrial fibrillation new onset was the highest and most common. But I'd also really point out that sinus tachycardia. I've seen that several times, inappropriate sinus tachycardia with a normal workup. Think about dysautonomia in this population or new dysrhythmia. Uh, new dysrhythmia. Um, <clears throat> but you can even see uh, new ventricular arrhythmias as well. Um, heart failure has increased risk and excess burden, um, ischemic disease, as well as cardiomyopathies and uh, myocarditis. And the way I tend to look at this is um, although the, these are increased risk and incidence, it's not so substantial that you'd work up all of these things in all of your patients. And so I tend to think about it, um, and this is stepping a little bit outside of my expertise, um, like an HIV AIDS patient where it's a pro uh, it's a hyper, um, excuse me, a pro-inflammatory state. They're at higher risk of some of these um, end organ diseases, but you wouldn't work these up in all patients. You'd use your clinical acumen to guide you. And I say that because early on, we were doing all of these studies in all of these patients. Uh, One caveat to that is probably brain fog. So the image I'm showing you is a digit symbol substitution test. This is a measure of processing speed and attention, those domains, we say, that are commonly affected. Um, It's just a 90-second test you could do in your clinic. Um, I know it's tough to add things to clinic. But um, so you're just subbing in the, a symbol for, for, the, for the number. And interestingly, so in our cohort, we found that 60% that reported brain fog um, had impairments on this test. But more interestingly, uh, 40% who said, no, I, I don't have any trouble with concentration or brain fog, um, actually had impairments on this test. And, and there's um, actually a recent study that was just published that, that corroborates this as well, showing that neurocognitive testing is more sensitive in a person's report of whether or not they have cognitive impairments. So consider this in your patients that have kind of that past, that long COVID um, constellation of symptoms. All right, let's move on to diagnostic and management approaches. So I thought it would be helpful just to give you a general framework uh, because these symptoms are so vague, they're heterogeneous, they wax and wane. Uh, Does my patient have long COVID? Um, So I would say, do they meet the WHO case definition? Um, It's not uh, the definitive definition like we mentioned, but it gives you a good framework. So if yes, I would say yes, they most likely have long COVID. Um, Keep in mind that part of that definition is that it can't be explained by other diseases. So it's still a diagnosis of exclusion, rule out other causes. Um, But I think that will help you because that's a question I get a lot from people. Is this really long COVID? Um, If the answer is no, I think that's still equivocal. Maybe they're earlier in their time course, they haven't met that three-month time period yet. This may be um, long COVID. Um, We choose that three-month time point because there are a fair amount of people. That just takes them a little bit longer, but they do get better within three months. All right, we're going to do another case based question this time. So 58-year-old male, he has hypertension, diabetes, CKD3, and he's presenting with six months of fatigue, brain fog, polyarticular joint pain, diffuse myalgias. You do a fiscal exam, and everything checks out normal. Which test is not indicated in this gentleman? And if you can't see from the back, CBC, CMP, ANA with IFA, TSH, free T4, and B12. Excellent. So, through you another easy one, and this is based on the discussion we we just mentioned. Use your clinical acumen to guide this. We do see some autoimmunity in these patients, but if we're not seeing active synovitis arthritis on exam, then uh, we find that uh, an ANA is not fruitful. But let's talk about what might be useful. Um, So, as we were opening up long COVID clinics in 2021, CDC met with a number of the medical directors and said, hey, what's working for you? What are you seeing in this population? And came up with consensus guidelines, which are posted on their website. they were posted in 2021, and to my knowledge, have not been updated. So, I'll go through the ones that I think still make the most sense based on what we're learning. So, I think it's reasonable to get a CBC, uh, CMP in these patients. Um... Uh, thyroid function and uh, vitamin deficiencies are good to screen for, particularly given the prevalence of brain fog and fatigue, looking for irreversible causes of these. Um, inflammatory markers, we're getting in all patients, uh, CRP, ESR. They're not diagnostic for long COVID. They're oftentimes elevated, but I've absolutely had patients who have long COVID without these being elevated. Uh, We don't find that they necessarily track with phenotypes, and um, we're not using them to trend therapies. So equivocal, whether they really have benefit right now. Um, This is a different slide. This is targeted laboratory testing. So yes, um, get that rheumatologic panel if you're seeing signs of rheumatologic disease. Otherwise, uh, our rheumatologists agree that it's not a useful test. Um, a a BMP might be helpful in a patient that you are seeing signs of heart failure since they are at increased risk. Um, Going back, but D-dimer, think about this like a malignancy patient. Again, a pro-inflammatory state, the D-dimer is often elevated in these patients. And so then you have to decide, do I really have a a high suspicion for uh, PE in these patients? Um, So again, if it's low, it can be helpful, but I would have your uh, clinical acumen drive that decision. And uh, troponin is often elevated as well. And and so what I've seen is the high-sensitivity troponin of 20, 30, 40. Um, and then you're left with, uh, do I think this is ACS? Typically, that's not why you're getting it, or they'd be in a different setting of care. And you're left with, what I, what I do with this information? So I find that the troponin has not been as helpful. Some targeted diagnostic testing to consider. Um, So the six minute block test, I think particularly in those that had severe acute COVID, um, you can unearth some exertional hypoxia that actually needs to have oxygen. Um, And it helps you get a feel for their exertional tolerance. Um, And then I'd really like to bring attention to the tilt table test because I talked about dysautonomia a couple times. So this is the diagnostic test. It's about 92% specific for um, dysautonomia or POTS. And so if you get that patient, they get up, they feel really short of breath, their heart races, they feel dizzy. Um, Think about POTS and refer to cardiology for tilt table testing. Um, a couple of other diagnostic tests listed on their website um, and a couple I've added based on what we've learned. So pulmonary function test is a great start for people who are dyspneic, just to rule out an underlying um, pulmonary process. Um, CT chest, uh, without contrast, can be helpful too if you, they had a pretty severe uh, pneumonia previously. VQ scan, I think for, for PEs, as these are often subacute, and assuming they don't have uh, significant, significant parenchymal um, changes that would affect the interpretation. Um, EKG, um, including potentially a halter monitor for those that are having a lot of palpitations. Um, We pick up dysrhythmias in this population. Um, You might see some RR changes consistent with dysautonomia. Um, I didn't discuss this um, because I didn't have enough time in this talk, but EMG nerve conduction, we are seeing signs of uh, small fiber neuropathies in these patients, so keep that in mind. That is a sign of long COVID. Um, Polysomnography, if you see OSA, um, low threshold for neurocognitive testing referral, like I mentioned. And the last I'll mention is uh, we're seeing um, a lot more GI manifestations. There's more attention around it. And so um, these tend to be more uh, IBS, um, potentially gastroparesis. Uh, so they may uh, need uh, these studies for either rule out of other diseases or for diagnosis. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of anxiety, depression, PTSD, so don't forget these screening tools that can help you monitor um, responses to treatment. And then what everybody wanted at this talk is the one thing that I probably will offer the least to you guys. <laughs> um, so we did talk that there are a number of end organ um, manifestations. So if you have those treat-by-best practices, you have that in your pocket. Um, However, we still don't have enough data on what is driving long COVID, and so we don't have any FDA-approved medications. Um, There are some repurposed drugs that are being used in long COVID clinics right now. I'm happy to discuss that in Q&A. But I think one of the most important things you can do for your patient um, is actually to validate them. Um, Oftentimes, their workup will be normal. And uh, they're often told that by their physician with really a good intention by the physician to reassure them, hey, your labs look great. Um, Your imaging is normal. Uh, This just takes a while to get over. And uh, for these patients, some of which are are extremely debilitated, uh, it's actually pretty demoralizing for them. And uh, there's a fair bit of frustration in the long COVID community for that reason. And so my advice would be to approach it more as, hey, this really sounds like long COVID. And for some people, that's really disabling. Um, Unfortunately, it's a new disease, so we don't know that much about it, but there are a number of studies that are gonna help us understand what's causing it, how we can treat it. Um, And although I know this is really frustrating, um, we're we're hopeful that we'll be able to to get there. And speaking of which, One of the early clinical trials that will be launched or is launching, there are three of them right now set up, is is Paxlovid, because there is evidence of uh, persistent viral reservoir. We see SARS-CoV-2 in the gut at four months post-infection. Also, have been able to detect spike antigen up to 12 months post-infection. You see that here in this figure in the red are the long COVID patients, and the blue are those that had COVID and didn't develop long COVID, so a certain percentage of those long COVID patients are developing, um, are, are persistently producing spike antigen uh, at pretty late time points. So um, the studies will be a Paxilovid 15-day course, looking at uh, composite symptom scores, patient-reported outcomes, and quality scale, quality of life scale. Um, So I have to mention the uh, the NHLBI Recover Initiative anytime I talk about long COVID. This is a massive 17,000-person meta-cohort, kind of a one-stop shop. We look at natural history, risk factors, pathobiology, and ultimately treatments. Um, We are geographically distributed, so hopefully we have a very um, representative uh, swath of the population. And we conduct uh, comprehensive surveys, have a biorepository, and we do um, triggered diagnostic testing, but depending on the results of their blood work and surveys and uh, clinical trials are under development. So in summary, um, I hope I impress upon you that long COVID is, is really quite common and I do think it will impact your practice. Um, you will, you're probably already seeing these patients, you got the answers right. Um, it could affect up to 20 to 25% of COVID survivors. Those symptoms um, are really vague and heterogeneous, but think about fatigue as being, you know, maybe uh, waxing and waning, could be the post exertional malaise, could be the exercise intolerance. Uh, dyspnea also could be heterogeneous, um, those that had the parenchymal um, damage versus those that have the perceived dyspnea from a dysrhythmia or dysautonomia. Um, brain fog is uh, trouble um, finding words, processing speed, attention, um, sleep. Um, Don't forget, sleep apnea is a potential um, uh, source as well. And then pain syndromes, muscle, nerve, joint, chest pain, a lot of headaches, um, dizziness, palpitations, anxiety, and depression. We suspect there are multiple long COVID phenotypes. We'll be learning more about those. We don't have them all defined. There is data to support um, uh, POTS and some growing data to support ME-CFS. Your workup and management should really be guided by your clinical acumen and um, yeah, please validate your patient. Hopefully, we'll have some medications to treat them soon. And these are my references.
0: Thank you. Before we turn to the questions from the audience, I'd just like to say personally, thank you to Tiffany Walker and to any other providers in the clinic, I mean, in the audience who stepped up to address and hopefully to treat long COVID, even at the point when we were right in the middle of the COVID epidemic of the pandemic and everybody was pretty feeling pretty overwhelmed. So thank you for stepping up at the time you did. So the first question, um, you talked about using Paxlovid to treat long COVID. Is there data on whether treatment during acute COVID with Paxlovid reduces the incidence of long COVID?
1: Not that I'm aware of. Um, In these clinical trials, um, they're often looking at uh, long COVID as an exploratory endpoint. And so there's some evidence to support. I think I mentioned earlier that remdesivir may um, provide some protection. Um, There's some others that were looked at in Uh, in clinical trials for acute COVID, like fluvoxamine, metformin, um, that show potential benefit. I'm not aware that we've seen that yet in Paxlovid, but I'm optimistic, and I think that um, early treatment might be really beneficial because, again, we're seeing this evidence of a viral reservoir, and I think once we have this kind of quiescent um, replication um, it might be harder to treat. So being able to treat it when it's uh, really in uh, the acute phase where you have really active replication, if we're able to clear that, then then I think um, hopefully we'll be able to prevent long COVID.
0: Another question around epidemiology, is there a national database to report long COVID cases so that we can collect further data over time?
1: No, and I think that would be um, a, a really helpful tool to have. And I think there's been so many different efforts in long COVID going in different directions that uh, uh, we haven't had a collaborative um, effort towards that. Uh, Like I mentioned before, there's still no definitive case definition. And different groups have different definitions, including uh, CDC's definition doesn't mirror that of WHO's definition. Um, So I think that would be um, really quite beneficial. I think at this point, um, the leading uh, study that will be answering these, again, is the RECOVER initiative. Um, all the efforts um, by NIH are really being funneled into that study. Um, and, and being a 17,000 person meta cohort really kind of puts it on par. I, I think about it like an NHANES uh, cohort being able to really answer a lot of important questions. So that's really the hope.
2: Joe? Hey, hey um, I apologize to everybody for being a pain in the ass, but um, um, <laughs> two studies were presented at CROI. One was the encitrovir study. Um, which is randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial done in, in Japan. Um, and they published a secondary outcome in, in a randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled study um, suggesting there was a benefit in, in long COVID symptoms. Um, so, so, you know, that's the, kind of the best evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, there was a, a, a 5401 study, randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled study of long-acting antibodies which you mentioned, Jeff, that showed um, uh, clear clinical benefit, you know, like a 90 87 percent reduction in, in hospitalization, no difference in long-term symptoms. Again, randomized, blinded, controlled, um, which was actually stunning because that, that obviously that antibody's around for that <laughs> entire time. So that, that got a poster because of course, nobody likes negative studies, so, so you, they're hard to publish and, and and, and they rarely get on the platform, but it was completely negative, um, mm-hmm. which is really kind of striking because it was clearly clinically effective. So um, I think that, that the data are still kind of up in the air.
0: Yeah, and we definitely need more studies. And I'm going to put you on the spotlight, Joe, because okay.
2: I hate
0: this, is a, this is a virology question because Tiffany mentioned that in the gut you can find antigen for months afterwards. But if the lung, people have argued that if the lung is the primary organ that's infected and you're, you know, coughing up antigen for months on end, you'll find it in the gut. How would you say if this is a true pathogen in the gut or is there, do you need to find markers of viral replication? I mean... Have you put any thought into this? Because we went through similar things yeah, with
2: yeah. I, mucosal I, infection I, and HIV. Yeah, I bet Tiffany can answer this. I, I think a couple, of, I mean, the biology of, of coronaviruses don't suggest a persistent infection, but, but I imagine it's, it's plausible. I also think that, you know, like um, it could be a little RNA producing machine so that without ongoing replication, you could get spike protein. There are ACE receptors in the gut mm-hmm. at, at a lower level than in the lungs, so I think that that it's certainly plausible that that there's virus in the gut. So I think all these things are are are, are plausible. Um, I'm skeptical that Paxlovid will do anything, but 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 the only way to find out is to test it as you're doing. So I think it makes sense.
0: Okay, all right, thank you. Um, you mentioned Tiffany that you know people we have data at certain time points about what proportion of people have either persisting or new onset within a certain time point of of symptoms. Do we have data on what proportion of people subsequently resolve back to a baseline or persist or worsen?
1: Yeah, no, we don't have those data yet. And again, uh, hopefully that will be answered by recover because it's supposed to look at natural history. So we recruit not only um, long COVID patients because we want to answer specific pathobiologic questions within that population, but we also recruit patients who have acute COVID, follow them prospectively so we can answer questions about incidence, resolution, and what that time course is so we really have a better feel for natural history. So that's really not defined yet.
0: And there's been this um, list of symptoms that you've highlighted. Um, when people observe other, you know, coincident problems like hearing loss, you know, is that a consequence of COVID? you know, some other strange manifestation, because for HIV, it took us about a decade to really get a good clinical picture of the chronic symptoms of HIV. Are you guys continuing to look for new symptoms in your long COVID cohort? And then how do you define at what prevalence they become a long COVID cohort?
1: Yeah, no, excellent question, and the answer is yes, most likely. Um, almost anything can be long COVID, which is a really unsatisfying uh, answer, <laughs> but uh, how are we approaching it? So, yeah, I, I chair the Adjudication Committee for Recover, and one of our responsibilities is to go through that free text that where people report their symptoms, go through and find symptoms that don't show up in our case reporting forums to determine Um, if these might be related. And so then adding those back into the study um, with some some cross-validation, and um, seeing if we can detect um, other symptoms. And um, it's gonna be challenging, because if they're occurring at a pretty low rate, being able to tell a statistical difference from those that are are uninfected um, is is gonna be challenging. Um, But we've seen um, a number of manifestations that um, show up enough that it's a little bit fishy. You know, uh, manifestations of um, Uh, some people losing their teeth or or, um, uh, gingival issues. Um, Yeah, hearing loss and uh, uh, tinnitus. So um, yeah, at this point everything's fair game um, and hopefully uh, we'll have some more data once we, we are able to have more of a comprehensive review of systems.
0: And I think parenthetically, we have it really easy in the HIV care community because we have a perfect surrogate, right, with viral load for active replication And for long COVID, it doesn't seem likely we're going to have a surrogate for long COVID based on what we're hearing so far. And, you know, I do think that it's really nice for the um, CFS-ESF syndrome that the research that's going on in this area might also shed a light on what's the pathogenesis of that syndrome since, you know, there seems to be some overlap.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of interest right now in both diagnostic and surrogate biomarkers, um, both because it's such a heterogeneous disease that wax and wanes. If we had a test that we can say, oh, this is long COVID, and then again, a surrogate one so that we are able to uh, monitor trends over time um, to treatment when we do find treatments that are effective. There's a lot of um, emphasis on that right now. We'll see elevations of IL-6, IL-4, but it might not be reproduced in all studies, um, so it doesn't seem to be... Uh, reliable, um, you know, past the acute phase. And um, what was your second point? Okay.
0: Um, a question that just came in on Slido. Um, has there been any investigation between, if there's an interaction between COVID vaccination leading to long-term COVID?
1: Yeah, so um, it's, a the, the data on vaccination is equivocal. So, uh, taking it in the other direction. Um, The seems to be um, the majority of the data point that vaccination is um, somewhat protective, um, not completely protective against development of long COVID. There are definitely anecdotal reports of individuals getting um, worse after vaccination or having new onset symptoms that kind of fit the constellation of symptoms of long COVID. Um, But the data on that is is not as strong as the data that um, there seems to be a protective effect.
0: Okay. And the, the diagnostic testing that you recommended up front seems fairly simple and easily accomplished. And then as you go into your clusters, then you get into more complex and potentially expensive diagnostic testing. Has anybody looked at if there's 25 million long COVID sufferers in the U.S., what the economic costs will be to go down the various pathways, and then you know, what is the likelihood that this will be economically feasible for the health systems, and how to make it so?
1: Yeah, no, not to my uh, knowledge. Um, I don't think there's been um, uh, um, social economy uh, of these procedures. But that was absolutely a concern of ours when we were opening these long COVID clinics because we saw these acute manifestations of new onset heart failure, PEs, um, ischemic disease. And so, like I mentioned, we were doing this million-dollar workup on all patients. And so that's something I'd like to highlight, that it's not necessarily indicated to do that. You'll see in my pre- and post-test, I gave you a number of diagnostics you could do based on heart failure, ischemic disease. But I think the things that are more common right now than those that are higher in this population are things like um, POTS and um, other um, immune dysregulations that are contributing to these symptoms. So I wouldn't necessarily jump to that million dollar workup. I'd really um, target it to what you're seeing. If it looks like POTS dysautonomia to you, then go for that um, tilt table test referral and that will be a cheaper exam than a cardiac MRI and an echo and and all those, yeah.
0: And then this last question I think um, is really Um, Oh, I'm sorry. There's another question here in Slido. Um, Young people with mild COVID aren't getting treated necessarily with Paxlovid or anything else. Might that be putting them at risk for long COVID? And you you showed in your slides that long COVID seemed to be more common in older people, but certainly was prevalent among younger people. So are we doing the right thing by not treating mild to moderate COVID in young people?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was the, 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 Point that I had, I had forgotten that I wanted to make. Um, we don't have enough data yet um, to, to the discussion we had earlier about antivirals that have shown some benefit in preventing long COVID. Um, I think we need more data and I think those need to be primary outcomes in clinical trials to know. But I do have a lot of concern that those could be really beneficial in preventing long COVID, particularly if there is persistent um, replication. And I, I really wanna emphasize that long COVID is not limited to the severe acute COVID population. I think that's kind of a misnomer. There's some data to support that it's worse in um, those with severe disease, but it's it's um, not strong data, it's somewhat equivocal. And we see lots of patients that have mild acute COVID that are um, really debilitated. I don't see anecdotally a big difference in those that are, are really sick. So. Um, I have a lot of concerns that we're missing an opportunity to um, treat all patients that have acute COVID and trying to prevent long COVID. I really think that's a missed opportunity.
0: Right. And it would be helpful if we had the data showing it was 50% effective or 80% yeah. effective, right? So we need to get more data. Yep. So for the final question, this is really addressed to the conference organizers. Since everybody here is vaccinated, why are we requiring masks? And- the reason is it's a judgment call, but we know that immunity wanes. And the North Carolina study that I presented earlier today, I didn't really dwell on it. But in that population, if you were more than three months from your last vaccination, your protection against developing severe disease was almost zero. So, I mean, it was not zero, I shouldn't say. It's its not, it wasn't as nearly protective as if you were within three months of your vaccination. So. For that point, at this point in the epidemic, we elected to continue the mask wearing. A year from now, it may not be required at all, right? We just don't know what's gonna happen with COVID. So it was out of caution.
1: Can I add to that? Thank you for
0: wearing your masks, I'm sorry? Can I add to
1: that? Yeah. Um, So the data show that um, uh, recurrent infections put you at higher risk of developing long COVID. This is more, um, um, uh, the association is stronger actually in Omicron than it is in the pre-Omicron variant. the, the more infections you get, the more likely you're to develop long COVID. I think we put a lot of emphasis on um, mitigating the risk of acute COVID severity and, and don't often um, consider the long-term sequelae.
0: Okay, thank you, Dr. Walker. That was very yeah. excellent.